he comes with this, like, he's like, I got this new thing called a CD player or compact disc player. And it, it's set in 85. So that's my nerdy book for the day. <laughs> <laughs> and it was fully historically accurate. Are you doubting the historical accuracy <laughs> of, of the wedding singer, Peter? <laughs> I guess I am. That's on me. Yeah. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm just here to remind you that anyone who is capable of getting themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job. Ooh, that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah. I am co-host Jeremy, and unlike... Almost every single album we've covered on this show, I am older than the album we're covering today <laughs> by just a couple months. By golly, it's a good feeling, isn't it? Or is it a weird yeah. feeling? It's. It feels a little weird. I don't know if it's... I haven't sorted through that yet. Yeah. It happens a little more often for me being born in 1980. Yeah. There's th- those seven years make a big difference as far as LP sales go. Yeah. And whatnot. And I, the person born in 1980, am co host Peter Cook. And as someone who has long confused and mixed up the bands Level 42 and Front 242, I'm excited to announce. <laughs> That I have found a connection between these groups that shall be revealed in this episode. Ooh, a little mystery. Yeah, something to look forward to. But we also are looking forward to doing this episode with our guest, who is here. Yes, I'm here. I'm so excited to be back. It's such a joy to be back with y'all and uh, covering one of my favorite albums of all time. And I'm excited to, uh, you know, talk about why and some of the other things that I know about the group. And um, I should introduce myself. My name is L'Oreal <laughs> and I am a DJ that goes by the name of Lola Kinks. But besides that, I'm also a mental health and sexuality educator and healing practitioner. And uh, yeah, that's been my work for 15 plus years. So it's great to bring those uh, worlds yeah. together, the healing, because music is so very healing to me. So, Yeah, you were on once before at the beginning of season three talking about the Jacksons with us. I sure was. And I love talking about that specifically since I live in Philadelphia and that being a Philadelphia International Records album. So it was, yeah, it was such a joy. And the Jacksons have such a significant, definitely history with my own family. Um, Just like thinking about my father comes from a large family and so did the Jacksons. My dad looks like Michael Jackson when he was about nine or 10. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it was really, really lovely to to do that and to share it with my family as well. Wonderful. Well, we've gone very, very far away from Philadelphia with the artist 
an album that we're talking about today. Why don't you introduce it? Yes, I will say there is a little bit of a Philly link, which I'll be excited to share in a moment. But we are covering uh, Level 42's 1987 album, Running in the Family. Awesome. And uh, where do we want to start? What song do we want to play? So we're going to start with the first song that I ever heard from them, if I remember correctly, which 87, yes, I would have been five years old. So we're going to start with this song, Children Say. Children Say. So yes, this is the seventh album from Level 42, British group. We'll talk more about them when we come back, but Children Say, side A, track two. into more of this with the background of this group, but prior to them becoming a new wavy pop band, these guys were all jazz heads, like jazz funk heads. You know, they, they grew up on that as their bread and butter musically. And I feel like you can still hear a little bit of that, especially in that chorus. There's that kind of like staggered drumming that you hear. I don't know if that's the right word. I'm not a percussionist, but <laughs> it's definitely not falling in the place that you would expect for like the snare hits to fall on a pop song on the chorus there. It seems jazzy to me. Yeah. There's there's remnants of their background here, but by and large, by this time, they're a real slick, smooth pop band. Yeah. You can hear it harmonically and melodically. There's these little like jazzy kind of like how you said with the rhythm it kind of just pokes its head in for a second and you're like oh yeah these these fellas know how to jazz down 
I feel like a lot of new wave related stuff by 1987 was often very stiff too. That's kind of what I was expecting when I first put this record on and was, yeah, I was surprised by how soulful it is, how smooth, how rhythmic. Yeah. There's some like R and B strong R and B going on here too. I love hearing y'all talk about this so much, <laughs> especially because <laughs> it means so much to me, this record. And, you know, while I was listening to it, every time I hear children sing, like, I'm bopping around. It brings back so many beautiful memories of just, I, I my family and I moved to Germany in 1987. And so those are really like the earliest years for me that I have memories of. And so I can remember being in the backseat of uh, my parents' car and uh, my father put this on. So he's the one who put me on to level 42. And, um, you know, this song in particular, my brother and I would kind of sit in the back and bop our heads. And I don't even know if we knew all the lyrics then, but it's so interesting to me that I think the feeling that always came up is kind of like this you know, reflecting on youth, like what it means to be youth, what childhood looks like, you know, what it feels like. And to really look at these lyrics today and think of it, you know, it's, it is kind of like commentary on like the idealism of youth. And it's, it's, it's so fascinating to me that like that energy was really apparent to me, even being so young. Oh yeah. That's uh, yeah. I don't, I don't have the experience of this album having been in my life since childhood, but knowing what music sounded like, you know, in 1987, <laughs> it's, it, it kind of <laughs> takes me back to that, even though I didn't know the, uh, this album as a kid. So that's, that's cool that you, you had this, you've had this in your life a long time then. Absolutely. I mean, I'm think I turned, I'm 40 this year. So to think I was five years old or around about five years old when this album came out and, um, you know, to know it from front to back and to have had this group as like one of my favorites since then. Yeah, it, it's it brings me so much joy. I'm sitting here like smiling ear to ear, even like talking about them. And yeah, I, I'm so excited to, to talk more about their history and just like other cool things that I know about them. Tell me a cool thing. So I think this is very apparent to y'all just being like the music nerds that you are, but like that slap bass technique that Mark King, um, that he has, which he did add his own like flair to it, but they were really inspired by the Mahavishnu Orchestra and also Return to Forever. And so Mark really, really loved Stanley Clark, who's Philly's own. And so he really, you know, kind of, ate, slept, drank, like everything like that Stanley Clark and really kind of adapted his style from that while adding on like his his own flair and the ways that he does. Um, but yeah, it definitely, every time I hear him, I'm like, wow, okay, Larry Graham. Okay, Stanley Clark. Okay, you know, and then his own little style that he also put on it too. So yeah, yeah I love the Philly link. I love also Return to Forever and of course Mahavishnu Orchestra and like, the greats that were in that with John McLaughlin and Jan Hammer. And I mean, just all around really great people to be looking to as inspiration. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting from what I read Mark King, who's all, he's the lead vocalist and the bassist in level 42. And I, he 
didn't really go when they formed the group and were getting things going. He wasn't necessarily a vocalist or a bassist, from what I understand. Nope. He, he absolutely he, not. So <laughs> really stepped up to the challenge. That's surprising because the bass is really clean on this album. Like people trying to mimic that like slap tone. Often it's like sloppy and not this is like crisp to the point i was wondering like is this synthesizer bass and, and like no it's just really it's him well done slap bass yeah i mean he's really given it like and and i love that you brought that in like that piece with mark you know yeah he was not at all trained as a bassist like he was a drummer yeah. And he like one day, you know, like the the label, which I can get more into as well, but like their first label, which was fine with like where they were at. They were certainly an instrumentation group as they started out. And it, you know, as time went on, it was like, yeah, we're moving into a different part of this era. Like in, just instrumentals is not where it's at for us, you know, and this is with Polydor and they put the pressure on. And so Mark was like, all right, well, and he sold his drums and he, you know, became a vocalist and taught himself how to play bass and like, you know, what? Like he, apparently he was so, such a, just like a, a savant, like he's so good at like learning uh, music. And so it's wild to me that like, you know, he did this on his own and in a short period of time at that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's especially how quickly he seemed to just pick it up. Uh, well, b before we get into more of the story of Level 42, uh, I don't know if anyone wants to, you, obviously, for you, Lola, this is a very important record. I don't know the, the background for the rest of us on Level 42. Uh, basically, I knew the song Something About You because it's been playing in retail stores my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not, a, that one's not even on this album. <laughs> I had never even heard of this band. Wow. Yeah, I... Most of the albums, even if I hadn't heard them before that we covered, I'm, like, vaguely familiar with the artists and kind of what their general thing is. This, I hadn't mm. even heard of that name before. <laughs> That's exciting. So I am fully new to this. How about you, Sean? You know, it's a band I've seen around, but I don't know if I'd really listened to them before. I mean, I kind of just always assumed they were a new wave type band and I collect some of that stuff, but I'm not like a huge new wave collector. So I just, I never picked it up. It's always exciting when a guest brings us something that's like off our radar though, you know, it keeps <laughs> the show fresh. Yeah. For me with uh, learning about this in their, in their background in jazz, it kind of reminded me of new shoes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that too. We covered a while back. Just, you know, in this similar time frame that we're talking about here. Uh, do we want to feature another selection before we get into their story, Lola? All right. So I could certainly keep on going into the history, but I will save that uh, for a little bit. But let's get into the next track, which is called It's Over. And it is... Oof. I'll talk about it after, but... Certified Jeremy's favorite song on the album. Oh. Yeah, it's uh, it's worth saying before we get into this track, uh, the Children's Say was the fifth and final single, the, the first song that we listened to. So they had a lot of singles from this album. This was the fourth single from the album. 
and it was a number 10 hit in the UK, also a big hit in the, in the Netherlands and Belgium. So let's listen to It's Over, Side A, Track 4. kind of modal chorus going on there that melody they have and i just love those like video game keyboard sounding parts at the Mm. intro it was uh it's like softly psychedelic almost i love that softly psychedelic using it oh my god can i just say like this song for me it is the most devastating take on a Dear John letter through song for me. Like every time I think about that whole concept of a Dear John letter and, you know, and, and what Mark, Mark's words here. And um, he, I, I know one of the lyrics is like, I can feel the tears running through the years. Just like, that type of imagery, he's so good at that. I mean, he wasn't the only person that was, I mean, there were other people that were writing, but like he just, the, his delivery of it to me also is just, it hits my heart really hard every time I hear it. And Mike Lindup, you know, singing uh, background and also on keyboards and percussion, the deliciousness of their their vocals together, just, it, it's, I love it. It makes my heart sing. Yeah, it was interesting to learn that Mike Lindup 
is responsible for the very distinct falsetto that peppers a lot of their popular songs Mm -hmm. and their catalog Mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to think that like both of them were not singing at the beginning, it was all instrumentation. (laughs) Yeah. That's really, once again, like I can't believe that both of them were able to like step up to the vocal challenge. Like, I guess we need singers. Often when you hear that story, it's like, Oh yeah, I can kind of tell that like, there weren't traditional singers <laughs> in this band, but uh, not here. I was very surprised to learn that they uh, picked that up as out of necessity for the group to be more commercial at their label's insistence. Like, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, let's get into their their story. I think uh, it's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, so I can talk uh, more about that. Mark, who I brought up, and Mike, who I also brought up, um, we should talk about the folks who really, um, I guess I would say, are were kind of like central, really, to the origin of Level 42. And that would be the Gold Brothers. And Phil uh, played drums, and Boone, which is his nickname, he played guitar and sax. And so... The two of them with Mark, like they had been in bands together for years during their teenage years. They're all from, and all minus Mike, they are from the Isle of Wight, which is a an island, which we did not know this until today. It's an island off the coast, the southernmost coast of England. And it's about two hours or so to London by ferry or hovercraft, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, so they had been connected, yeah, Mark and the Gold Brothers. And then about, I think it was around like 78 or so, they decided like, we're leaving the Isle of Wight. We're heading to London. Around 79, Mark and Mike got the chance to meet. Mike actually had gone to school uh, with Phil. And so from there, you know, I think Mark and Phil had had some experience with other groups. I mean, they'd all kind of been doing their own thing and then they came together and then they were collaborating with other people. And, um, you know, then they, they all figured out, you know, like they had these like overlapping inspirations as musically. And I think Phil really, when I think of the group was the one who really was for the whole period that Phil had any connection with the group was really like hoping for this like jazz funk sound to be maintained throughout the, you know, throughout their um, time as a group. And I'll get more into that a little bit later. But um, yeah, that was really like the origins of of the group. And, you know, they I've said this a couple of times now, they were instrumental. And, you know, at the beginning, I think from 80 to 83, they had three albums. And the first album was on an independent label. And then the second one is when Polydor came knocking. And um, the person who was the, who started that indie label that their first album was released on, I think his name's Andy Socha. Sochka, something like that. He actually named the group. So this group, they are named after, actually they were supposed to be named 42. Like that's it. And, you know, they 
we're okay with that. But then Andy was like, that really is not not doing anything. Like we need to like add something else to it. So Andy was the one who added in the level. 42 came into play because I think it was like Phil and Boone or Phil and Mark, one of the those two duos, they were reading Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is also one of my favorite books of all time and and a really short one, really easy one to read. And if you have read that, you know that the number 42 in the book Spoiler is alert. said to be... <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> uh-huh. um, the number 42 is said to be uh, the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. So the way it goes, the question was asked, what's the meaning of life? the universe and everything to my say 42 <laughs> and there it is yeah that's uh i long before i ever knew anything else about hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy that's what i knew about it 42 was like the meaning to existence <laughs> <laughs> so that was spoiled for me long before this episode <laughs> okay good i'm glad i'm not the one just trying to save those who who haven't had it spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> That's also where my intro came from. The thing about presidents. It's from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as well. Uh, oh. uh, need to reread it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot in there. Like it's a short and easy read, but it's kind of dense. The thing I realized when I was reading it is if I wasn't like actively laughing every paragraph it means i wasn't paying close enough attention (laughs) it's that consistent yeah but the jokes will fly over your head if you're not careful i feel that just thinking about the movie i think yeah i think i've only i've seen the most deaf zoe deschanel whoever else was in it adaptation from the 2000s of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy (laughs) well yeah so they had you know we've talked about Mark King, lead vocalist, bass guitarist. We've talked about Mike Lindup, keyboardist, backing vocalist. We've talked about Boone Gould, guitarist. And we talked about Phil Gould, drums. But there's an additional player in this picture, Lola. And that would be Uh Wally Batteru, who does Jeremy, do you you recognize that name at all? I did recognize that name, but I couldn't place it at first. And then I like looked him up and I'm like, oh, from Grace Jones. Yes, yes. <laughs> we talked about him on the Grace Jones Living My Life episode. He was heavily involved with, with Grace Jones, but he is even more so heavily involved with Level 42. He's uh, uh, Wally Batteru is an Afro-French keyboard player, and he played keys and synths on all of level 42 releases up to this point and the, the, the album that we're talking about today, as well as afterwards until they uh, initially broke up in the mid nineties, he was, he had taken on the producer role starting with the previous album to the one we're talking about today, world machine. And that had their huge hit something about you on it, which he co-wrote. That's he also co-wrote a lot of their material. He was like the de facto fifth member and he did, but he did not play concert dates with the group, and he hasn't been involved with them 
since uh, the revived version of the group has been doing stuff. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I was thinking it, but didn't say it. <laughs> How many times do you want to say spoiler alert per episode? <laughs> yeah. But he the, re- the reason that he was uh, on that Grace Jones album that we covered is because he was one of the Compass Point All-Stars, which was the session team for Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas that was founded by Chris Blackwell, owner of Island Records. So, of course, we talked on the Grace Jones episode about Sly and Robbie and all, you know, he would have worked with all those guys. And pretty pretty major behind-the-scenes figure, Wally Batteru. He, as a session player, he's appeared on albums by Talking Heads, Robert Palmer, Foreigner, Mick Jagger, Joe Cocker, Jimmy Cliff, and uh, worth noting, M, which is the project of a guy named Robin Scott. Do you guys know what big, well-known novelty song M are responsible for? It would kind of predates level 42. I do, I do. What is it, Lola? Pop music. <laughs> yeah. Pop, pop music. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, the, that song, Wally Batteru played on that. And so did a young drummer named Phil Gould, drummer of Level 42. And mm-hmm. so that's how they, I think that was kind of the Wally Batteru and Phil Gould's introduction to each other. And Wally got to know the rest of the group as they formed through Phil and that connection. Wally's Batteru has also produced albums for people like Marianne Faithful and Fela Kuti. He's just all over the place. So very integral to level 42 like a big big part of their story and their sound i was just gonna say about i love that you brought up the album before this because yeah that was the point when they started to experience like some more widespread success and you know they'd had been in successful in the UK. Like that's what's wild is like they had had success. They knew that, but they hadn't experienced it in the United States until something about you. And why I wanted to speak about that record just for a moment is because one of my favorite remixers, um, Shep Pettibone, does a great uh, mix of their song World Machine from that album in 85. And he also came back and did a mix of Lessons in Love for this album. It's worth noting that Lessons in Love and the title track, Running in the Family, are the two biggest hits from this album, and you chose Lola to not feature either of those. I mean, I thought about that as well, (laughs) to be completely (laughs) honest, you know? I mean, it was... I have to be transparent. Like, it was really hard for me to pick four songs for this. I mean, I I knew that it was going to be the one that I'm going to play next. And um, I think I was kind of, it was a free for all for the rest the other three. So yeah, I, I did not choose either one of those. I think it was because also I heard them the most via Euro MTV. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah. I think I had an opportunity to hear them on radio and all of that all the time that these were the, the cuts that I think uh, more connected to my heart and memories um, with my family. Yeah, yeah, no, sure. It's 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 always hard to pick just four. We we all struggle with that, and it's yeah, go with the ones that have the most meaning to you personally. I think that's great. And the next selection that you wanted to feature was to be with you again. So we yeah, we can go ahead and do that. That's going to be side B 
track one. This was the third single. We're kind of going backwards here with our, we, we started with the fifth single, then the fourth, and now we're at the third single released from it. This reached number 10 in the UK. It was a hit in the Netherlands, Belgium, New Zealand, and Switzerland. It seems like they were hitting all over the world, but a uh, little less so in the States than a lot of other areas. We'll talk more about this one when we come back. to be with you again that song um so you know i i I put it's over before and then this track and that's how it goes on the record um but as i'm sitting here i am steaming a little bit thinking about how there's the song that mark sings before this where he's you know it's this devastating dear john letter and he's talking about you know he's he's breaking this woman's heart and then The next song is To Be With You Again, where he is talking about the heartbreak that he's experiencing and all of that. I'm just like, are you kidding me right now? (laughs) (laughs) Is this the same woman? Like, what's happening here? So, you know, it's it's so funny to me. What's what is the sequencing choice here? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. I mean, did you want to anger people? Just (laughs) Um, but yeah, this, this track in particular, I love, so, so the, the thing about this record in particular is I have the VHS of the videos that are all, you know, that were all recorded for this album. And so this video in particular, if I remember correctly, they're all kind of just, it's juxtaposed between like concert footage. And then I believe like they're all in like revolutionary costumes and it just, 
it doesn't make sense, but it works. It's cool. I'm into it. <laughs> I watched the video for this because this was the, the I had a, the connection between level 42 and the band Front 242 with this one. And this one had like a woman rolling around in bed like she couldn't sleep. She was struggling to sleep. Yes. Do you recall that? I do remember that. And then does a wind does like a mirror break or something like that? I yeah, that sounds that sounds one. familiar. I, I was kind of rotating between watching it and doing more research, so I wasn't fully <laughs> in, invested in in my watching of of the video. But the what the connection was that the video was directed by Peter Christofferson. Does anyone know who that is? Is that some kin of Chris Christofferson? <laughs> I'm guessing. No, no, no. Peter Christofferson was a member of industrial music pioneers throbbing gristle and psychic tv and then later coil oh interesting and he directed this video but he also directed a video for the belgian electronic music group front 242 so that was my (laughs) connection that i was able to find (laughs) between those two groups how long did it take you to find that well once i saw that he had directed this the video for this song i was like i bet he did something for front 242 because they're so much closer to that throbbing gristle coil type stuff and sure enough he had so <laughs> i once i saw his name on it i knew my connection was there finally <laughs> <laughs> the nerddom knows no bounds here i love it so much <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you're, you're you're in the right place for stuff like that it's so good. It's so, so good. I, you know, I was thinking about also what you had said. I think, Sean, it was you talking about like how like, soulful you, you know, it sounded. And, you know, I think one thing to also mention, which is not this album, but it would be three albums before this. They had an album that was co-produced by Verdine White from Earth, Wind & Fire. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like I feel like they certainly had the collaborations that really continued to inspire them throughout the course of their career, which is still going, but we'll talk more about that. Yeah, I thought that was really fitting once I saw that Verdine White and uh, who's the other guy, Larry Dunn from Earth, Wind & Fire, the two of them had produced an album of theirs. And, and I was like, that makes total sense. And they they were in the States, I think, you know, they'd come to the States at that point. That's like the fourth album. So, yeah, they had more of like a, that's when the poppy sound or like that more sophistipop, which is, you know, as as a DJ, that's like one of the core genres that I play, you know, so I fit kind of like level 42 in there and swing out sister and uh, Sade, prefab sprout, like some other groups. But yeah, it, it, it made a lot of sense to me that that was kind of the the turning point when things, you know, went a lot more like commercial or started to become a lot more commercial. Mm -hmm. I was watching an interview with Wally Batteru and he was very defensive of the group's choice to go more commercial. He's like, Hey, you know, if you've got a knack for weaving melody, why, why stunt yourself? Why hold back? You know, he, he was very defensive. He's like, these guys, really good at it so they did what they did well but didn't uh, not all the members were so into that and i'm guessing we're going to explore that some more 
Yeah. So it was at this point that some drama started. Didn't start, actually. The drama hit its fever pitch. Um, It was a couple albums before this where Phil and Mark really began to kind of like have it out a little bit about creative direction of the group. And I think it was around like the fourth album or so or maybe it was the fit. it was World Machine. And that's when they started to kind of hit this like wall with one another. And I believe like at that point, like Phil like left the group or something, but it was like for a week. And so mm-hmm. then, you know, it comes back, they continue. So World Machine's like 85, Running in the Family comes out in 87. They continue going and then Boone, so Phil's brother, was actually the first person to decide to leave the group. And, you know, Mike will say something similar later, or Mike said something similar later as, uh, you know, the band evolved. But Boone wanted to leave the group because, like, he wanted to spend more time with his family. And, like, he wasn't really into the touring. I mean, they were touring a lot like they were doing a whole lot and they were on top of the pops and they were on all you know all the different shows and played all the festivals i saw that they i think right before boone left they had been on a tour opening for madonna and what's interesting about that is i believe gary husband i believe it is like who who comes in later i think he had also been like working with madonna or was that Phil, I think Phil or Boone, one of them ended up going to to Madonna. You're saying Boone, right? Yeah, it was one of them. One of the Ghoul brothers. They left because they both kind of left after this album came out in kind of a close proximity to each other, right? Yeah, yeah. So Boone, yeah, that that's what happened. And and yeah, Phil held on as long as he could, and then he was like, "I'm out too." And you know, to know that this had been going for a while. Yeah, because I, I think he had been pretty opposed to the pop direction. Oh, yeah. No, he wasn't. He, apparently, like, he was not <laughs> He was not into it. And it's funny because I was watching videos of theirs, and I was wondering if I would be able to see, like, any of that, like, you know, like that energy that sometimes, like, you know when groups are sparring, you know, like someone has kind of like a, a face like they don't really want to be there or they're just going through the motions. And I, I'm not really sure if they could see that, but I mean, I, I think they are certainly amazing performers and, you know, they had gained a lot of cred for being like an amazing live band. And I mean, that's what they started out doing and they have continued to do that. And so with this, you know, Phil had left and the, video for children say that's actually the first video that uh, the gold brothers are not in so you'll see like mark you'll see mike and you'll see i think one or two children and it's filmed in paris so it's like filmed on the streets of paris and and beautiful and all of that but yeah the gold brothers were not in that so that was like you know come the end of 87 and they were out gone one of them never to return again And (laughs) I I guess I should also say just like, you know, just briefly, like a little bit more about like where they went from here, because, you know, 87, they're they're doing their tours, you know, for this record. They're in all over the world touring. 
we talked about like the success they had experienced um, with something about you. And like, that was actually the first and only U.S. top 10 single that they've had. And they have maintained like their success to this point, like in the U.K. and some other places. And so, yeah, they continued on and put out a couple more albums, which like Staring at the Sun in 88, 89, to fulfill, I guess, the end of their Polydor contract, they put out Level Best, which is a best of album. And come, I think it's like the early, like 92 or something like that. I think they ended up going to like RCA. Yeah, in 1990, they ended up at RCA and then did uh, two albums after that. And Phil actually returned in 93. He, he came, he was performing, and uh, Boone, while he n- did not return to perform with them, he was still doing, you know, writing some lyrics and such. So I appreciate that, yes, like, they both decided to leave. However, like, Boone maintained his relationship um, amicably with the group, at, you know, while Phil was, you know, dealing with that with whatever he needed to deal with and and it wasn't just like a okay the two brothers are just storming off like you know pissed off it was like it was phil's thing and boone just wanted to go and like take a break so and mike later does that as well and he you know couldn't do the touring life anymore and i imagine just how much they were going it makes a whole bunch of sense, but Mark powered on and, um, you know, he's been going and doing like solo work. They brought on other members where one being like Alan Murphy, who RAP, who was a member of the group Go, Go West, I think at one point who did that song, uh, King of Wishful Thinking for the Pretty Woman soundtrack. <laughs> and um, yeah, he was a session musician. Yeah. But he died of AIDS in 1989. And so he was with them for not too long. And something that I had read was, um, sadly, that, you know, he might have known already that he uh, was living with AIDS at that point. And um, he wanted to, all he knew was that he wanted to live out the rest of his life like doing what he loved. So I, I mm-hmm. while that is really devastating to hear, I appreciate that, you know, he ended his life like playing songs with with level 42 which was his joy and uh like i said mark ends up going solo and come the 2001 like he decided to buy the rights for the name level 42 and he worked it out with mike lindup and like they marks continued to tour which I'm very excited about the fact that like this year is the 35th anniversary of this album. So Mark has been touring along with Mike and uh, many other people that they have pulled along the way. So I think like the group now with Mike and Mark, and then there's like five other folks. So like they're going, they've been doing this for a, a while now. And I think Mike came back around like 2005 or something like that. But they put out a record. The last thing, I guess, to mention is they put out an EP rather in 2013. And like that one's called Sirens. But what I love about like what I mentioned before with Shep Pettibone, who I love, love with this one, the Sirens EP, like it's six songs and the DJ John Morales is who mixed it. So I, I really appreciate that, like this jazz funk, Brit funk group, you know, started off as like 
instrumental evolved to this like uh, sophista pop maybe at some points you know with like these new wave vibes and they always maintain this connection with like DJs because their songs you know were being played at the clubs and so I, I love that they they have that connection and and I think that that's where I've also continued to hear like something about you is you know dancing at like a new wave night or something like that <laughs> but I think the last thing I want to say about um Mark, in particular, is something that I had read from an article in 1994. I didn't read it in 94. It's from an article that was released in 94. But it was an article that was written on the band 311. And (laughs) Peanut from 311, he actually comments on Mark King and says that he believes that Mark pioneered what Les Claypool does today with Primus. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, Les Claypool, renowned weirdo bassist from the band Primus. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Well, you know, yeah, I'd love to hear. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's some examples of it out there because I'm pretty much only familiar with this album and a few other hits, some stuff I checked out. But I bet Mark could shred that bass if he really. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll send you concert videos. There you go. Yeah, there's there's <laughs> probably plenty of content out there. It is worth uh, noting that you mentioned Alan Murphy, uh, one of the replacement players uh, passing away. Boone did, unfortunately, Boone Gould passed away in 2019. He sure did. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Yeah, he he was found in his home. And I remember that day like that was, oh, goodness. And it was it was interesting to see you know, like Questlove, like did a post about Boone. And I was, that was like one of those moments where I was like, oh, okay. Like <laughs> folks are talking about members of this group that I've loved and adored forever. So I, I appreciated that, like him and, and some other people that were, you know, speaking about like the influence that Boone had had. And just like, I guess Boone's also heart being like a, being a really like dope dude. So. Well, Sean, what did you find for recommended similar albums to this level 42 album? Yeah, I got three records that I think uh, have similarities to different aspects of this band. The first one is a little harder to find nowadays, but talk talks. It's my life from 1984. They have like Mm. a lot of similar kind of atmospheric elements to this with like the little bit of soul mixed in, you know, we have, talked very little about talk talk on this podcast and that should probably change that's a major important group (laughs) true so good that that album is so good their records usually aren't cheap though it is yeah all their stuff just keeps going up in value because once you become a talk talk fan there's no going back you know and it's also a group that changed stylistically a lot as they went on i mean they went kind of a different direction than level 42 but it's always interesting to see these groups that start in one place and evolve into something else later on my next selection is a group that actually got mentioned on the episode so that's cool go west self-titled from 1985 featuring their hits we close our eyes and call me it's got a lot of similarities to i would say like more of the upbeat songs that you're going to hear on this record and other level 42 records. Very nice. 
And then the last one to really bring home the comparisons to the, the soul and R&B music, for some reason I just kept thinking of the record Hearsay by Alexander O'Neill from 1987 <gasps> when I was listening to this record. Sean, you know I adore you, right? <laughs> There's some similarities between those two albums, right, though? Like, I'm, I'm not imagining that. Oh, my goodness. Alexander O'Neill is another person who I just can't get enough of. And that Hearsay album, I thank you so much for mentioning that. I, I don't think folks listen to Alexander O'Neill enough outside of Saturday Love with him and Sherelle true yeah we've definitely got to feature one of his albums on the podcast at some point one additional mention that i'll have and i don't have a specific album in mind but the audio engineer on this level 42 album is a person named julian mendelson and also provides backing vocals on one of the songs but probably julian mendelson is probably best known for producing some work by the pet shop boys and that's Another group that, uh, you know, I, people are probably familiar with and you could say, you know, their stuff. I don't know what their stuff goes for, though. And, you know, they were active in making hits into the 90s. <laughs> well, they're still probably active <laughs> in making stuff. But I, I remember them in like 93. They had a big hit called Go West, <laughs> the uh-huh. old disco song cover. And uh, yeah, so I don't know. I, I It's funny because... When you th- you think ninety two ninety three, you you think about the fact that like Nirvana and grunge had come in and killed off hair bands, so to speak, or at least that's how the story goes. And so you kind of think of the eighties as being dead by them, but some of these like new wave groups, like New Order, Pet Shop Boys, were still scoring mm-hmm. hits well into the nineties, and are still touring. Yeah. I feel like it's some of this R and B sound that we're hearing on this record. Also, like if I think of like Boys to Men's first album, Coolie High Harmony, it has some oh, yeah, similar yeah. sounds. So, yeah, like you said, Questlove was was uh, citing them as an influence. Like I don't think this this group should not be underestimated in their influence. I I agree with you. And now you know you heard what Peanut said about Les Claypool. So here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Even yeah. I think about the pork soda. Yeah, the pork soda tape that I had in 90. I don't remember what that, 96, 95, no, no 94 probably. But that Primus mm-hmm. pork soda tape, you know, I was obsessed with that. And it's funny that my brain at that point, while a lover of pop culture and certainly very much a nerd, I hadn't yet made that link with les and and mark king so it's it's so cool to to have uh i guess reached his understanding of that a, a while ago and then to have this affirmed by a 1994 article so thanks peanut <laughs> thank you peanut from 311 <laughs> well lola let's uh turn some attention towards you and do you have anything to plug before we Get out of here. Yeah. So tell the people more about yourself. Absolutely. So uh, just like before, I have a, a radio show that I do every second Wednesday from uh, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern time. And it's called Pretty Mess with Lola Kinks. And yeah, on that show, I really, you know, it's thematic by episode. And uh, the next one will be during my birth month. So I'm very excited to, to 
feature a whole bunch of different things that uh, bring me joy and uh, are quite celebratory. So you can find me at greatcircles.net on second Wednesdays, 7, 8 p.m. Eastern. Fantastic. Well, we are going to wrap up this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar with the final selection that you have chosen, Lola, is The Sleepwalkers. I, I noticed that it's subtitled Tunnel Visions in the, uh, on the liner notes. They subtitled this Tunnel Visions. I think this, this is the final song on the album, and I actually think this is a great example of that Compass Point All-Stars sound that, you know, uh, producer and unofficial fifth member Wally Batteru would have been involved mm. in creating with, you know, artists like Grace Jones. <laughs> I think this has the closest tie sonically to that. I love that. That this also it's it's uh, makes me think about they toured with the police in 1981. And I don't know, there's something about this track that like reminds me of the police. It's like that really I don't know. There's like this, it's a groove, but it's kind of like a, it's a jamming type song that I feel like I, when I hear it, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm like sitting at this like cool little bar and I'm at a beat on a beach and, and just vibing out to this song about like myopic thinking and like how we're all kind of <laughs> sleepwalking. And um, yeah, I, I, I love the lyrics for this. And uh, one in particular is, um, where he talks about basically like we only see the things we want to see. And I can't help but reflect on that uh, so much, especially today. Wonderful. Well, you, yeah, this was one that you last minute decided you had to feature. So <laughs> we were going to do a different track originally. <laughs> yeah. I think this is a great one to go out on. And that says it all for this installment of I'd Buy That. For a dollar day, yeah. Thank you so much for coming back on with us, DJ Lola Kinks. And this was a very fun and different from anything we featured lately. So you've helped bring some variety to the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, listeners. Thank you for subscribing to the Patreon, patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. We're going to get out of here. Level 42. The Sleepwalkers, subtitle, Tunnel Visions. My name is Peter Cook. My name's Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Lola Kinks. Time.